Welcome to Web3 with A6NZ, a show about building the next generation of the internet from the team at A6NZ Crypto. That includes me, your host, Sonal Choksi. This show is for anyone seeking to understand and go deeper on all things crypto and Web3, whether artist or other creator, developer, entrepreneur, or other builder. So in this week's episode, Chris Dixon and I chatted with Punk6529, who joins us by voice modulator as he is pseudonymous. By the way, fun fact, we've only had one other guest in the history of the A6NZ Podcast Network who joined Mediated via voice technology, and that was artist Murat Pak. I'll link to that episode in the show notes as well. For more background about Punk6529, you can visit his Twitter account for further links. And as a reminder, none of the following is investment, business, legal, or tax advice. Please see A6NZ.com slash disclosures for more important information, including a link to a list of our investments. So anyway... In this hallway style conversation, we chat all about NFTs from use cases to art and generative art, as well as briefly touch on metaverse, VR versus AR, the recurring theme of bridging physical to digital and digital to physical. We also discuss the recent news and moves around NFTs launched on Reddit and in-app purchasing on Apple, as well as mindsets around regulation and more, including ending on a broader view of network effects as applied in Web 2 versus Web 3. But we begin with Punk sharing his frameworks for use cases for NFTs. I have two frameworks that are my starting point for thinking about uses. And the more important part is the framework, because if someone has that framework in place, they're going to find other uses that I'm not going to think about today, right? We're just at the beginning. Uh, And so for sure, there will be some very successful NFT usages in three years, and everyone's going to look at each other and say, wow, how can we even think of that? That's such an obvious and great idea that was sitting in front of us the whole time. We had no idea until it happened, right? So the two frameworks are the following. The first framework that I have is NFTs are a transportation technology, a carrier technology, a financial technology, transaction technology, and ownership technology for intangible assets. And intangible assets, people might listen to that and say, okay, sure, maybe I can buy that. But that doesn't sound hugely important. And that's a mistake. Intangible assets are a gigantic category of societal assets, particularly in any advanced economy. There is a report that comes out every year where this consulting firm analyzes the amount of intangible assets just on publicly traded companies' books which is obviously a subset of all intangible assets, right? Because there's many intangible assets that don't appear on any financial statement. You know, the Statue of Liberty is an intangible asset and it means a lot of things and it means a lot of things for the United States and it makes the United States more valuable than that specific piece of land would be in, you know, the land being the United States would be in absence of the United States being thought of as, a welcoming place for immigrants to make their lives and careers, right? That's an intangible asset. You're not going to find it anywhere on any financial statement, but it makes the United States and everyone in the United States on the margin wealthier, right? So this number I'm going to tell you misses a lot of major intangible assets. And the number that's explicitly on the books is $77 trillion. So I remember in the early days of Bitcoin, people would have these discussions of, Well, how big a market is Bitcoin possibly targeting? And there'd be multiple different 
views, right? Some people would say, well, it's money supply. And then you'd get into the question, is it M0, M1, M2? And depending on which one of those you think is relevant, and I don't think it matters too much that these are not like specific formulas, it's in the low tens of trillions of dollars. And then other people would say, oh, it's gold. It's not really like money. It's more like a commodity. And the kind of premier store value commodity is gold. And so how big is gold? Gold's about 10 trillion. And so that's the right logic. And I remember having these discussions when the market cap of Bitcoin was $4 billion. I found a memo I wrote to someone then with like, it was $4 billion. And I read what it says. Oh, yeah, if it becomes X percent of this or Y percent of that, maybe in a few years it can be 10x or 100x what it is today. Well, the same logic holds here, the NFTs. Gold has a very strong multi-thousands of years network effect, right? People are going to trust gold for a long time. A lot of people are going to trust mm -hmm. gold instead of imaginary computer coins for a long time. Intangible assets, non-fungible intangible assets in general don't have that, right? There's not as much risk in moving some IP of a streetwear company into a tokenized format as there is in thinking about, you know, national sovereign currencies, as you're thinking about mm -hmm. gold reserves, right? You can eat up this market cap incrementally. And each specific decision isn't a big, scary decision. You know, if Adidas moves effectively some fractional percentage of their brand equity into some token, it doesn't create any systemic effects. You don't need to worry about what this means. There's no risk that Adidas is going to you know, wreck the global economy if it does that or anything of the sort, right? So that's mental framework one. It's a gigantic addressable market. And we can use these tokens to move around any of these things. And people say, well, but I don't understand how right-click save or there's no rule that says this is how it works. But all of these things, what thing represents something else? The social convention. If an artist agrees that this token is the owner of this piece of art, and the collector agrees that this token is this piece of art, and the other collectors agree that this token represents this piece of art, well, then it's okay. It's done. You don't need anything else other than that social convention. And then people will say, okay, but let's say I was really wanted to formally transport an exclusive license to, I don't know, some Adidas shoe, and under the U.S., IP laws, that needs a written agreement. Okay, well, that's like the e-signature thing. Like, one day we'll agree that a token-based transaction of this certain type is legally binding to transport that IP. And the way that's going to happen, the way we'll actually pass the law, is first you have to start using it before the law is passed. The reason Congress passed a law to enable e-commerce is that e-commerce already started. If e-commerce hadn't started, there wouldn't be any perceived need to do something because it would seem completely theoretical, right? So people started buying things online and people would send their money and people would send them their goods. And on the whole, it worked fine because on the whole, people aren't trying to cheat each other, right? On the whole, if you bought something online, the vendor wanted to send it to you. So whether or not it was officially legally binding, it was in practice and enough people did it long enough. And then you actually got the official checkbox in the legislation, right? So... This is framework one. Great. And what's the next framework? Framework two, most of the world is non-fungible. 
we forget this because we spend a lot of time thinking about financial markets. And basically, other than financial products, everything else is non-fungible. I mean, look around you. Your house is non-fungible. Your office is non-fungible. And I remind everyone that the largest asset class in the world is real estate. Right? So the largest asset class in the world is non-fungible. The national park connection is non-fungible. Your clothes are non-fungible. Your car is non-fungible. Nothing is fungible, right? Nothing. The only things that are fungible are some forms of money and some securities. That's it. Everything else is non-fungible. And so if you think about what we've been thinking about since the beginning of crypto assets, are we also going to tokenize real-world assets? Well, sure, we will eventually. And most of them are non-fungible, right? Most of them are not going to be fungible tokens. So we take these two frameworks together. What do I think they mean? I think we're going to start, as we have, with things that are natively digital, right? So NFTs started with collectibles and then art. And then there's this whole like discussion of are they collectible and are they art? Which ones are art? Which are collectibles? Of course, for the purpose of this discussion, none of this matters even. 0.1%, who cares, right? They're clearly intangible assets and everyone is moving them around using NFTs. Will we go to in-game objects? Of course. Will we go to brands and communities? Of course. And, you know, we're seeing the very beginning of this in fashion, but only the very, very beginning. You know, religious groups will use them. Universities will use them. Alumni associations, sports teams are going to use them. Someone is going to make the Society for Hot Chili Sauce Lovers, right? And you'll organize them through NFTs, right? There's no particular point where this ends. Right? So you'll be able to organize brands and communities, and those brands and communities might be organized virtually, but then they will have impact in the physical world. You know, maybe they'll figure out how to produce hot sauce, and you'll eat that hot sauce, right? Then you'll have more generalized IP, and you know, my pet topic, which it incorporates all of the previous topics, is metaverse objects, and you know. I have my own bespoke definition of what the metaverse is, and I think a lot of the confusion happens because if you ask 10 people what the metaverse is, they'll all say, yes, metaverse, and they'll mean 10 different things. And so my view of the metaverse is that the metaverse is going to be the internet in all its messy glory that it is today, but with better visualization. My whole life, visualization has gotten better in the browser. I mean, you can't see me, but... If we were doing a Zoom call normally, we'd have free global video conferencing. We didn't have that 20 years ago, right? Some of the things we're doing now in the browser with 3D spaces like, um, I often look at museum websites and they look, well, very flat now, right? Like, oh, oh yeah. here's the pieces we have, right? They look like an Amazon page relative to seeing things in a three-dimensional gallery. But the end state is for sure going to be augmented or mixed extended reality, right? Sometime in the 2030s, the glasses will be light enough, good enough that you can wear them all day. I'll be like wearing a pair of sunglasses. And your field of vision will include mostly the world around you and some digital objects, whether it's your spreadsheet or your Fidenza or anything else. So one is better visualization. And the second is persistent digital objects. And this is a big one, right? Wait, so say more about the persistent digital objects. Like, why do we need that too? I mean, just for the listeners, the previous, and, and for you too, the previous episode, we did a deep dive on metaverse, including this topic, but I actually want to hear your take. Because arguably, 
I have a persistent digital object. I'm going to be more precise, persistent cross-application digital objects on LinkedIn, my boring LinkedIn photo. But that is not interoperable. It's not application. It's not cross-application. If I want to make it interoperable, I've got to get an API key. I've got to follow the terms of service. I've got to integrate with each application individually. It's a nightmare. So basically nobody does it, right? It's effectively not interoperable, even if there is an API. Whereas token 6529 of the CryptoPunks contract can represent my Twitter profile, and it can represent my avatar in OM, and I can take it to a lending platform and borrow against it. Not that I would ever do such a thing. Kids don't use leverage, but let's say you did. You could do it. And any number of thousands of different things you'll be able to do with a CryptoPunk in five or 10 years, right? Someone's going to make a game. And instead of just making objects, game objects from scratch, they're all going to say, oh, look, if you have a CryptoPunk in this game, you get a, a special wand, whatever it is, right? It's interoperable. That's great. And just really quick, just want to pause and rephrase one of the definitions you had, Punk, just for the audience. So basically you're saying those two points, that the metaverse is the internet, but with better visualization and persistent digital interoperable objects. So that's basically your definition there. Just wanted to highlight that. Yeah, correct. And once you've seen that, once you've thought to yourself, oh, I can own something digitally and I can actually own it. I'm not just a user in the terms of service agreement of some company where I can be kicked out of their database at any point in time. Right. You know, Chris has a big Twitter presence. I have a big Twitter presence, but we're guests in someone else's house. Totally. Right. We don't own that presence. We can be thrown out with zero recourse at any point in time. Right. We're guests on Twitter servers. And as it should be, right. Twitter is a private company. They can do whatever they want with their servers. Right. It's not our job to tell them what to do, but we are guests. Well, with NFTs, you don't have to be a guest for digital objects. If I mean, when people tell me, like, oh, I don't like NFTs. I think this is bad for A, B, C, D, E, F, G reasons. I ask them, okay, you don't want to own a piece of art as an NFT. You don't want to own a piece of digital art, a Fidenzo, let's say, as an NFT. And I'm going to assume for the purpose of discussion that like this is someone who agrees that the digital world is real and we should do things in the digital world and the art shouldn't just be oil paintings that are on your wall in your house, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the alternative is fine. Tell me which company's database you're comfortable holding your art for the rest of your life and then giving it to your kids and their kids and so on. Which company do you trust? Which company do you trust to operate a digital art service and that you will actually own it and be able to give it to whoever you want and so on? And I have no problem with the tech companies. I use all their products, but I wouldn't trust any of them with this thing because the most likely thing that will happen is three years after they launch the digital art service, There'll be some strategic review at the CEO's office and say like, oh, yeah, we're not making enough money of this. Just shut it down. We need to focus on search or selling cell phones or whatever, right? So it's obviously the case that if the internet is going to be more expressive, if it's going to be better visualized, if it's going to be more immersive, and all of these things are 100% sure things. There's not a single person. There's no future technologies that the internet's going to have worse visualization in 10 years. It's going to be vastly better, and it's going to be more immersive, and we will spend at least the same amount of time we're spending now in it, maybe even more. In which case, we're going to want our stuff there. Right? People like owning stuff. I consider this uncontroversial. If I call up anyone and say, do you like owning a car, a TV, a dining room table, a clothes, or a house? Yes, it's normal. Well, we should own stuff in the digital world, too. And since most of the stuff we're going to own in the digital world, other than our money is going to be non-fungible, 
it is now solved how we should own it. And I'm not sure anyone's really realized this. I mean, a few of us here on NFT Twitter have realized this, but certainly like in the big decision-making powers, I mean, I'm 100% certain the EU is five years away from setting up some completely pointless committee on interoperability of digital <laughs> assets, right? When the problem's already solved, we have interoperable digital assets. They're called NFTs, and there is literally endless intangibles, right? Intangibles. There's no physical complement that can be moved on chain. And the very nice thing about intangibles, they can be natively digital. You don't need a bridge to the physical world. And I know it's a very long answer, but I want, let me just complete and then we'll bracket it. We will also later trade hotel rooms and weeks at a vacation villa and billboards in a stadium for a certain minute and a certain day, those will also trade as NFTs. And there the big difference is going to be not that they are decentralized because these need a bridge to the physical world. And obviously the stadium operator is not decentralized. They're centralized. The hotel owner is not decentralized. Right. They're centralized. Right. So for these to happen, you need the regulatory bridges so that the transaction is enforceable off-chain. But there, the benefit's something different. The benefit is you're going to move things out of massively fragmented databases into markets. So there is, even today, in 2022, there is no market for nights in hotels in San Francisco. I can see what's available, what is unbooked by going to whatever it is, but there's almost certainly the case that someone who has that night might be willing to sell it for more than they bought it to someone else, right? That's what the market's called. And if the hotel nights were tokens and you'd had something like OpenSea, you could see, hey, what's the floor price for tonight in this hotel? Well, you'd have markets. Today we have kind of semi-functioning markets. You can have completely functioning markets. And if you're the type of person that believes markets are good and useful and a good way to allocate resources, this is obviously another social good and another social good that is already solved and we could just get on with doing it now as opposed to spending 10 years going there kicking and screaming, which is a phrase which might actually happen. I love that you said this very profound idea, which I just want to pause and pull out for a second. This idea that you move things out of a database into markets that we actually believe we have to be locked into these databases. I think that's a really profound idea to pause on for a second. Yeah. So... Let me stop there, but it's safe to say that I think the overall addressable market for NFTs are these two categories, mm -hmm. right? Intangible goods and tangible, non-fungible goods that can be tokenized is utterly gigantic. Yeah, I would just add to that. I think you can learn a lot by, as Punk mentioned, by analogizing to the offline world where, you know, clearly having the ability to own things is important, not just, you know, for personal satisfaction. I think people do get satisfaction from knowing that they own their house or their car or whatever it might be. It also, you know, imagine sort of as a thought experiment, a sort of dystopian offline world where, you know, four or five companies controlled everything. And every time you went to a new restaurant, you had to choose from their selection of clothing and other items that you're going to wear. I mean, this is literally how the internet works today. But I think there's a really important kind of knock-on consequence to having everything sort of centrally owned and no kind of user ownership. 
which is a huge drag on entrepreneurship. So, Mm. you know, the fact that Airbnb could exist as an example was a consequence of the fact that people truly own their homes and are free to do things with them. Obviously there's local regulations and things like this constraining them, but there isn't some big megacorp that owns all their homes and sets the terms of service. And so I think a lot of entrepreneurship, just look at a city as an example, you know, a typical city you'll have on a single block, very importantly, you'll have public infrastructure like the sidewalk and the roads, which are a network that have a network effect, but that network effect accrues to a community. And then you'll have intermingled with that. People, you know, may own apartments, businesses will own a restaurant or a barbershop. And it's very important that you have this combination because the entrepreneur is willing to make an investment in that restaurant, let's say, knowing that the foot traffic has a zero take rate is, you know, unabated Mm -hmm. the network affects part of the community and they can make a real investment there, right? They know the kind of rules of the network, so to speak. That's very, very different from how it works today. I think this is something maybe you see from my vantage point from sort of the entrepreneur side, that basically all entrepreneurial activity that used to exist around networks, for example, in the 90s, people building websites around the Mm -hmm. web network, the World Wide Web, and people building companies around email, that's all stopped. People don't build companies on Facebook or Twitter or TikTok anymore. They build companies that try to hack those networks and sort of sneak in and then you know get to scale and then hopefully get off of them. That's kind of the game for the last decade in sort of traditional tech startups. But they don't build on top of networks anymore the way they did in the 90s. And like so much of the innovation you saw, you know, in the early internet with people building around this public infrastructure, the web, and you know, having the assurances that they could make investments and not sort of have the rug pulled out from under them the way that these companies like Apple are doing. So I think the default assumption, as Punk said, should be that ownership is really important in the offline world. Why wouldn't it be important in the online world? That most of the offline world is non-fungible. I also believe that probably the default assumption should be that non-fungible online world is sort of the biggest category of tokens. And then one last thing I'll say is, you know, I think sometimes people sort of see these things, tokens and the word sounds like, you know, Chuck E. Cheese or something. (laughs) But I think it's a very important concept, which is that what tokens do is they encapsulate, there's a concept in software encapsulation, they encapsulate sort of a really big idea of ownership into a very simple computing primitive in the same way that websites encapsulated, they took this big idea, this big kind of grandiose idea that we're going to democratize the world's information Anyone can create, you know, can send and deliver information, linked information. It was a big idea, but it was encapsulated in a very simple software mechanism, Mm. the website. Mm -hmm. It's the website, you know, and the website had certain interface to other websites you could link, et cetera. And of course, at the beginning, they started off, as I like to say, very skeuomorphic. People built them to look like magazines and other kinds of things that existed in the pre-digital world. And over time, they really kind of grew into their own and became, as we say, internet native and with much more advanced functionality. And I think NFTs will follow a similar path. But I do think that the fact that the virtue of encapsulating it in this very simple thing has also thrown a lot of people off and made them Mm -hmm. dismiss it as something smaller and less impactful than it is. If you tie together what you're both saying, it's actually really interesting because on one hand, you're saying, Chris, like the original premise of any innovation, networks, internet, all of it is just honestly fundamentally honoring property rights, which is literally a predictor of where innovation clusters have done in countless studies in any country, any place in the world. The most successful innovation clusters are those that honor property rights as a key factor. And then the second thing, just kind of tying to what Punk was saying about NFTs as an ownership layer for the internet and metaverse and beyond, 
you're basically saying that that's the encapsulation of it, which I think is actually a more profound idea than I think people yeah. realize. It's funny. I read this book. Have you read this? I think it's called Own. It's like these economists mm. talking about six different kinds of ownership. And it's an interesting book. They go really deep in it. It's about property rights, essentially. It came out a few years ago. And it was a good book, well-written. What was remarkable about it, though, to me was that it went, you know, 300 pages around property rights in the modern world and never once did it strike them that <laughs> this is all missing from the digital world. There's sort of this elephant in the room. And I think that's generally, for whatever reason, and maybe it's just sort of this pre-internet kind of bias or something, but yeah, I think it's virtually an axiom in economics that property rights enable entrepreneurship. And yet somehow uh, this is a, yeah. a minority view on the internet. Totally. <laughs> well, Chris, I honestly can't remember if it was you who tweeted this that yeah. said, you can like figure out people's reactions to like almost any of these issues. The heuristic is, do they think the digital world is real or not? Right? Um, is it a real thing? I think that was me, actually, yeah. Yeah, I think it was you. And it's funny because I think a lot of people do not yet think it's real. And yet when I ask and I talk to them, I've stolen that and I use it all the time. I say, okay, I mean, most people I know work in an office and most of what they do in the office is look at a screen all day. And so what do you mean the digital world's not real? I mean, what, what do you think you know of it? And like, where do you think your economy and your job are being implemented all day, and they're being implemented in a digital context, and overwhelmingly, me, myself, Mr. Decentralization, if you tracked my computer usage, you would see that I spend the vast majority of my computer time on one of 10 centralized tech company servers, right? And this, to me, is problematic, right? We've like gone all the way around back to the mainframe here, I mean, there's all this cloud and scaling and whatever, but effectively, it's no different than where we were in the 70s, where you rented time on someone's mainframe. And whether the mainframe is a bunch of individual yeah. instances, who cares? Like, it's effectively the mainframe era. And that does not seem well appreciated, both by individuals or by institutions, and that, like, that this might be problematic. And I wonder, and I don't know if, Chris, you have any view on this, it's not like we started yesterday, right? Like the crypto people started mm -hmm. a decade ago. And of course, we made very good progress. But also, of course, I think if I just grabbed an average person on the street and started talking about crypto assets, let alone like NFTs and Bitcoin or Ethereum, I still think the median person is still in the mode of like, why do I need these things? And, you know, maybe I'll make money, maybe I'll not make money, maybe it's a scam, but like, there's still like, I don't think the median person is going to tell me that, oh, yeah, it's important that I own something digitally or that I need these things. What's gone wrong? Like, is it just early? Are we not communicating correctly? Why is this happening? I think that it's a couple of things. Well, one, I think it's been held back somewhat by the strong, you know, political and kind of cultural, some of the pushback. So, for example, let's take gaming. You know, gaming, I think, because of the controversy around NFTs and things, it's pretty clear that this will come kind of pure NFT games will come from brand new companies and not from incumbents. And it just takes time to build games. There's some really exciting things in the pipeline. So, uh, you know, I agree with you on that. To me, the big question is the regulatory question. I think there's a pretty clear path towards greater adoption and really compelling products with that being the kind of one big variable that could significantly slow things down. Look, I do think these things take time. So, you know, I started a machine learning company in 2008 and I thought I was late to AI and I sold the company in 2011 <laughs> and 
I clearly am now it's having an incredible <laughs> renaissance. And so I was clearly too early. But, you know, Alan Turing's famous Turing test paper was 1950. I think he predicted a much more rapid kind of evolution. You may have been around for this, but I had friends who started mobile companies in the 90s, the early 2000s. I had one friend who quit mobile and he was an entrepreneur in like 2005 because it was never going to happen. You know, there was General Magic, which was a serious attempt at the iPhone it was 1993. I also think, you know, how long have we had programmable blockchains? I mean, I think 2015, right? And then, you know, ETH1 pre-merge was, you know, had significant performance problems. I would say like just as someone who spends their day with application developers in this stack, maybe only today do we have kind of acceptable infrastructure to build things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so clearly there's more work that needs to be done because I think ultimately, as you said, the median person will will get it, I think, through experiences. They need to have the visceral experience of it. By the way, Chris, your theory about the strong versus weak technology adoption... That also plays out. Well, yeah, my kind of general view is that the really meaningful technologies, they don't adapt themselves to the world. They require the world to adapt themselves around them. And the example I used in that blog post was Steve Jobs releasing the iPhone that required you to type with your thumbs. And everyone was, you know, the journalists and others were saying, how are people going to type with their thumbs and how they work? And Jobs said, your thumbs will learn. Meaning essentially the (laughs) device was so amazing that you'll make the changes that are required. But what happens is, When really kind of profound technologies are introduced, some people look at them and they say, wow, that requires a lot of changes. Let me take that and kind of dilute it and create a version that doesn't require that many changes in the world. And as a result, I believe you see these technologies come in pairs. So a very simple example would be an electric car. That's radical. It requires a charging network, requires changing vast amounts of infrastructure. And so for a long time, car companies would make hybrid cars, right, which sort of adapt themselves to the world as it is. And frankly, aren't that exciting from an energy kind of savings perspective and things like that. And it took a visionary entrepreneur to come along and kind of bite the bullet and say, no, we're going to change the world around them, right? It's happened throughout the history of computing. Punk alluded to the internet had a, people forget this, but it had a centralized rival, the information superhighway. It was like Disney and Comcast and things, which was sort of the safer corporate diluted version of, of the Wild West internet. Skype and voice chat had VoIP for people to remember that. Voice over IP, yeah. I list a whole list in my blog post of examples. And I think clearly that's going to continue to play out. And maybe now that we're potentially in another crypto winter now, we'll see a whole nother wave of bad diluted ideas. I don't know, but I think it's been a pretty predictable pattern. But that's also going back to your question. That's also why these things take time is you need the world to change around it, including developers including users, you know, it just takes time for people to adapt. Sometimes it takes probably generational change. Maybe some people just simply won't ever come around to this. And and I also think we're suffering from this. We're in this weird period where I, I think the longest in the history of computing, where we've had very centralized platforms at this level of power. And I think that has created a little bit of a Stockholm syndrome where people think that's a good thing and think that these are sort of benign overlords. I think they're starting to see that come apart at the seams, you know, and I think they will more and more and start to realize the trade-offs that they've made, that this mainframe era, as Punk describes it, is is not all good. I'm sure that will play out over time and people will start to see the benefit of alternatives. I love that you said it's like a Stockholm syndrome. And just for those who don't know that reference, um, I think a lot of people do, but just in case, it's like this feeling of affection or trust that you get when held hostage by their kidnapper. It's like a way of coping. But I know we're jumping around a bit. Let's just talk about VR for a bit, because I definitely want to hear you guys jam for this because it relates to this theme of strong versus weak tech and also for thinking about how things come about when it comes to like innovation. Sure. My view on VR 
is the following. I mean, I've bought every consumer VR goggle since that first Samsung gear came out in 2015. And part of how I develop my views on things, like any new tech thing happens, I do it. And then I see if I do it again. And so one question that I always ask people is, oh, this is going to happen. And then I ask them, well, are you spending any time doing this? And if the answer is no, well, it's unlikely that it's actually ready. And to me, VR is still in that phase of it's unimaginable on today's generation of VR goggles that you could have that on your head all day. It's just, it's unimaginable. No one's going to do it. And if that's the case, it can't become the main platform because you can't have a situation where you spend all your day doing something else, but then there's anything important in the zero minutes or 10 minutes or 30 minutes you spend in VR, right? Like I think VR as it is now can enable some interesting gaming experience, but it's not there for day-to-day -day computer usage. And Apple supposedly have these cool goggles come in. We'll see what they are, right? But what is in the market today, what you can use today, it's not something that people can go to the office and spend all day using, right? So I think part of what happens, and I've seen this reaction from many people, including like extraordinarily pro-technology mm. people, where I'll tell them something like, oh, I'm trying to build up a metaverse. And they'll say, oh, yeah, you know, but like, I'm not really into wearing VR goggles. And like, I really like real life. And I just can't imagine my spend spending all day in that. And my answer is like, yeah, no, of course not. I mean, I can't imagine myself spending all day in VR either, right? But I actually think today, these richer experiences are primarily still going to be intermediated by your computer screen, right? On a computer, just like you do everything else. And in time, we will gradually get there on VR and AR. But further to that, it's still going to be most of your hours in AR, and AR can easily switch to VR, but not necessarily the other way around. Like you can replace everything with the VR thing you want to see. But you're going to want to see the world around you. You're going to go get a coffee, right? Like, I mean, you have to go to the bathroom. If you're in the office, you're going to see a colleague walking down the hallway, right? You can't literally spend all day and not see the world around you. So that point is very specific to where we are in the technological development of the hardware. Like, in some medium to far future, like, will someone figure out how for these things to be contact lenses? Yeah, well, in their contact lenses, you literally will wear them all day, right? And that's fine. But we're just not there yet. One thing you didn't close the thread on, Punk, is a little bit more about the real world connection. Can you talk a little bit more about where you see the real world connection playing out, especially because I saw your news a couple of weeks ago about your collaboration with Vivian Tam on the fashion brand side and kind of more digital physical. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that connection. So on the integration to the physical world, and by this, I mean, not VR, AR, but integration off the computer screen, I'm going to say something which may or may not make sense, may or may not be the exact mm -hmm. right model. Okay. I don't think the main event is you have a token and that token gets you a Vivian Tam t-shirt. Like there will definitely be stuff like that, right? Definitely. So that's absolutely fine. And it's a useful way to manage a potentially closer relationship with your customers. It's possibly a nicer way to do it than you go to check out at a retail store 
you know, right? What's the normal experience? You go down to a retail store, you buy a pair of jeans, and then the poor person working the cash register is now bugging you for your cell phone and for your email. And they usually have to do some types of incentives for you to give them to them because what you know as a consumer is when you give them to them, you're going to get a bunch of spam email you probably don't really care about, right? And you'll now every week hear about, I don't know, the latest new jeans, whatever, Levi's. Well, this is not a particularly good customer experience, right? So you could imagine instead that instead of getting a receipt, which you're going to throw away, you get an NFT, which you might want to display, you might enjoy. And, you know, not just for jeans, right? You go donate to your alumni association. What you will literally get today is an email receipt. Extremely not exciting. $5,000 donations. If you donate $50 million, we'll get a building with your name on it. That's different. For civilians, you donate 50 bucks, you go to 100 bucks, you go to 1,000 bucks, you get an email receipt. Well, it seems to me getting the badge of you're a silver buckeye, you supporting Ohio State, you can show this in your wallet, is better than getting an email receipt, right? But this, this, you have a token and it's hybrid and there's a tangible object. It's cool. It's going to happen. We need to do a lot of experiments with that. I think it's going to be a better way for a retailer to manage their community. But to me, the real question of the physical world is not necessarily merch. It's are people doing things in the physical world? And does the token serve as a coordination mechanism? That's great. Right? And those things are doing doesn't necessarily mean they, they bought a t-shirt, right? You could imagine a token coordinating a bunch of people to clean up beaches. Well, that's in the physical world. The beaches in the physical world. And anything that matters, anything in life that matters, ultimately comes back to people. There's no successful product of any type that doesn't involve people and large amounts of people and significant quote-unquote engagement with people. And so what I think we will discover is the much greater expressiveness of NFTs will allow us to do much better social organization with crypto than we could with fungible tokens. You know, one of my frustrations a few years ago was, okay, so we can do payments with Bitcoin. That's cool. Like, that was pretty cool in 2013. What else can we do? And I would be racking my brain, and I couldn't think of very many things you could do additionally. But with an NFT, you can represent much more complex social structures, you could represent a company, right? And different roles in the company, and different access rights in the company, and different decision-making rights in the company. And have those things represented not in your HR database and your policy manual, but represented in something that's on chain, and you could have like a smart contract that unlocks certain decisions, right? And I'll start with the most trivial of trivial examples. We have this NFT fund, right? And we have these mm -hmm. internal sets of rules. And we have people who are experts in different areas, generative art, one-of-ones, and pepes, and all these things. But there is a decision-making grid that says, you know, any individual can make a decision for up to so much ETH, and then to a certain other level, so much more ETH. And if it's a bigger purchase, then everyone has to agree, or everyone minus one has to agree, whatever it is, right? The details don't actually matter. This is the type of thing that is represented 
in bank databases and policy documents and constitutional documents, non-programmable. But there's no reason you couldn't have your ETH in a Gnosis safe. You have a module that represents these rules. And so someone needs 10 ETH and that's within a small decision that they can make by themselves. Their key unlocks it. If we need 200 ETH and you need three votes, three votes unlock it. And this is, I mean, this is literally a trivial example. It's the most trivial example you can imagine. It's signature authority in a bank account. Yeah, but you can express right. that with them, right? You're going to express that and you can express any arbitrarily complex social structure with NFTs. And if you can do that, then they can serve as a coordination mechanism to actually do things in their world. Now, is it straightforward? No, we're still figuring it out. I mean, there's like maybe a million people using NFTs or 2 million or 3 million, right? But initial adoption, early, early, early adoption adoption, we've only had it for a year. And we've already seen, in my opinion, more interesting things done in the last 18 months in NFTs than would happen for years in fungible tokens. And I think this is not because NFT people are smarter or better or what have you than people who were making altcoins or something, but that the technology is more expressive. I mean, in the limit case, you can express fungible outcomes with an NFT, but you can't do the opposite, right? I can make an 1155 token and make a trillion of them, and I have a currency. And then I can make another token and do something else with it, right? And put metadata and control the size and link it to different things. So it's just a much more generalizable platform, but also one where the power to generalize is standardized and at the end consumer, right? You could say, oh, I could do a lot of these things with a smart contract. Yeah, but then you need to be a smart contract developer, which is literally the hardest thing on planet Earth to find. You don't need to be a smart contract developer to change some metadata on an NFT and mint an NFT. You need to be like basically capable of using a computer. And so we suddenly have this extremely expressive tool. It can represent arbitrarily anything. Anything can include anything that people do in the real world. And it's in the hands of individuals. You don't need a developer to do any of this stuff, right? So I think we're going to see a lot of quote unquote real world stuff but we should think much more abstractly than real world stuff means your token means a t-shirt. We can also do that. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's the big idea. No, there's a lot there. Um, so uh, <laughs> I'll just make a couple of points. So I would say first on like the metaverse digital world thing, I hear this a lot that sort of people call it kind of physical world privilege. <laughs> I don't know what the word would be. Like people say, oh, these Silicon Valley people are working on atoms, not bits. I'd say a couple things to that. One is people, I think the average is now like five hours a day on their phone. Like people just live in this world. But two, clearly the digital world and the physical world are strongly interacting. So just a simple example is politics is mostly playing out on Twitter these days, which clearly has offline implications, you know, online dating. I mean, you just go through a whole list of like core life activities and social activities that are mostly determined on the internet now. And so therefore these structures of how these conversations are organized and things like that become incredibly important. Which is not to say the offline world doesn't matter. Of course it does. It just doesn't happen to be, for example, my expertise and what I work on. But I think it's clear those two things interact. And one of the critical questions that Punk is talking about, and I agree with, is a question of this metaverse, quote unquote, which I think loosely means just an internet that becomes increasingly important, higher engagement, deeper engagement, may or may not be mediated through new interfaces like VR. But I think the key question is, there will be 
lots of interactions between these different digital experiences and offline experiences. And the question is, are those interactions you know, primarily driven by users who own their assets and are free to switch around, or are they owned by, you know, a few megacorps who kind of control that experience the way the current mobile phone experience works? Mm-hmm. And that's a very important question. And I think one that really only of all the different areas in technology, only crypto is even discussing. I don't know. I mean, there's these sort of semi-defunct, like, semantic web. And I don't know, there's just, you hear these occasional things of like other kinds of proposals, but they have these like principled objection to any technologies created in the last 20 years. And that puts them at a significant disadvantage, but it's not like a serious discussion anymore outside of crypto. And I think it should be a very, very central discussion. Like is the metaverse going to be a Facebook controlled, you know, system, or is it going to be kind of like the web, right? Where anyone could create like a different site and they link together and users move around. And beyond that, you have assets that the users own and control. And so that seems like a really critical question. And what are your thoughts, Chris, on the VR discussion and views that Punk shared? On VR, I'm a little more bullish than Punk. Mm-hmm. I do think it's early. But like the Oculus Quest 2 sold more units last year than the new Xbox did. It was like over 10 million units. You know, I think if the right things happen, they create the right device in the next iteration. They just released a pro version, which I thought was a little... I don't know. I think it was, to me, it was a little bit of a distraction, but the next consumer version. And then I think you really need some hit experiences in the vein of Minecraft and Fortnite. They'll be clearly social experiences. And, you know, I think Facebook's taking a too closed approach. They're heavily curating some of the best games on VR. I play VR is like our games. They actually won't allow in their app store. Like I think they may have changed their stance, but for a long time onward and Pavlov and a few others. I think the big thing with VR right now is there's one company working on it. Apple has a rumored thing. Hopefully they'll get into it. But like we're in this weird moment where these tech companies have virtually infinite money and yet are barely doing new aggressive things outside of Facebook. Yeah. So that's just a broader kind of question of like, I mean, I I got the iPhone 14, but gosh, it's hard to see what's different with the 13. Mm -hmm. Like These things were really top of the S curve. Yeah, it's like uh, incremental innovation now. Very incremental. Yeah. Anyway, so I think the interfaces could come in different forms, the implementation in different forms. But the key question is really this question we've been discussing around NFTs and the economic and political structure of these new important virtual mm-hmm. worlds. Yeah, we had Perman Narula, CEO of Improbable, on the podcast last week. Hunk, I don't know if you've read his new book, Virtual Society. It's very good on the topic of metaverse and VR and interoperability more. But He had a great take on the VR point, which is simply that it's actually not necessarily VR or not VR, but about, you know, how connected, linked, interoperable, composable, all these things are. And really about the, what you said, Punk, it's about the people at the experience wanting to be together, which I think is probably the right take. On the VR device front, Chris, I think the most interesting thing is you probably don't remember this, but a few years ago, right before the pandemic, we did a quick episode on some of the then latest Oculus news And I think what was most interesting then that they had finally allowed better pass-through on the headsets for the Oculus. And I think that was a critical moment. Yeah, well, that's the the new one they just, the release, the ProQuest. I haven't gotten Mm -hmm. mine. I ordered one. The ProQuest is coming out this week, I think, actually leans in on the pass-through thing. Yeah, Um, yeah, exactly. But it's also $1,500. and Yeah, it's not accessible. But I think the key point is that it actually is no longer the separation, to your point earlier, Punk, of physical in real life is not real online. Is well, not real. but 
yeah, it connects I, the two, no? You don't agree? Well, I think there's different the word connect is doing is different senses in this way. <laughs> yeah. Like there's connect like literally in the same frame, and there's connect like I met my spouse on the internet. And I Very think the, la- the latter probably is more important, in my view. I- I'm a little bit more bullish on VR than AR. Like yeah, Pastor yeah. is essentially AR. I just think AR is a little bit weak in the way we described mm-hmm. before and VR stronger. A 13-year-old in 2050 is gonna want to go. Do they want to go partially into the metaverse with their sofa next to them, or do they want to go all the way in? Yeah, and, you like, joke about that, seeing the coffee cup. In I, don't view, I don't know. I just I've never <laughs> seen like fourteen year olds want less intensity. So that's why I'm a little bit scared. Oh, no. like, I should clarify my time frames. Right? Like I think in the twenty twenties, for non gaming applications, or at least today for non gaming applications, it's not going to be there. Like for gaming applications, it might be there now with these new devices, and by the twenty thirties. My view on these mixed devices is they'll switch you seamlessly from AR. Yeah, yeah. I think we're probably agreeing then. I'm not, I was just sort of uh, refining the point. Well, this is a great point to switch topics. Like so far, we've covered NFT use cases, metaverse, VR, AR, kind of the golden trifecta of topics, which also connect to each other. And we've also touched on the connection between physical and digital throughout, as well as tech adoption timelines. On that note, Punk, I have to ask you this question specifically because you're such an art lover and so am I. And I had asked Kevin Rose this too in our last chat with Chris two episodes ago, if you haven't heard it and you want to catch his answer there too. But I've been obsessed with generative art a very, very, very long time. I'm not kidding. And I want to know what you think or why you think, if you think, generative art has found its native medium on blockchain, even though like generative art came way before blockchain by several decades. Like why is blockchain so natively perfect for generative art. Like, do you have a point of view on that? Oh, yeah. It is the absolute native medium for generative art. And I think the definitive essay on this is Tyler Hobbs' essay on long-form generative art, right? And what it allows a generative artist to do is the following. Like, pre-blockchain, and also today, I mean, people do this with NFTs, right? Even the top artists, including... Dimitri Cherniak and Tyler Hobbs also do one-of-one generative pieces where something was created with an algorithm, and then they meant it as an NFT or pre-NFTs, right? It was displayed in some type of installation format, et cetera. And that's great. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it, right? It's normally how you make art. The amazing thing with generative art is that you can provably show the breadth of the algorithm, Right. And it's a different form of challenge than, hey, I have an algorithm and who knows what it normally turns out, but I found this good output. So I'm going to, this is my artwork. And again, I'm not saying this in a criticizing way. That's also absolutely fine. One of my favorite pieces I own is of this format, a piece that Dimitri made from an algorithm that he never actually used. And it's a beautiful piece. It's stunning. So there's nothing wrong with that, but it's different versus saying, look, I'm going to release this algorithm. And kind of the end state of that is what's happening now with QQL, right? Which is not just we're going to mint a thousand QQLs, but everyone can see as many outputs as possible Mm -hmm. or as they want from the algorithm. And, you know, we're, I don't know, 5, 10, 15 million outputs in. Well, I think this is just incredible, right? Like it's a more interesting experience. It's a more expressive, I keep using this word, version of seeing what the algorithm does. It has more integration with the collector, right? Because even in the normal case, even in a normal type of generative drop, the randomization is created by the time that you mint. So 
you're in some very minor way a co-creator, and in something like QQL, you're very much in a very practical way a co-creator yes. of the Mint. And so this ability to have an artist create with a community for something that, and I'm going to go to what Snowfrode was always talking about, right? Like the one of one of X. It's the mass customization we used to talk about in the 90s, right? I remember. Much, much, much nicer, much, much fancier, much, much more aesthetic, much, much more interesting. And so ask the question in reverse. If this is not the natural medium for generative art, what would be the natural medium? What would it look like? It's clearly not like anything that existed before this. What could get better? And it's not totally obvious to me what that would be. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. I mean, what you're really saying is it's democratizing creativity and the creation. You know, just one quick note, you mentioned this moment in like the 90s when we talked about mass customization. You know, I would argue that back then it was actually very limiting vision because they were really doing mass configuration, which is actually very limited because it's pre-constrained by the designer's view of what those parameters are. Whereas with the generative model today, it's actually true mass customization, not mass configuration. So that's one note I would make. Why don't you think about it as democratizing beauty? Oh, I mean, I agree with you. I'm all for democratizing beauty. Right, because we used to have a world, a pre-industrial world, where everything was handcrafted. And because it was handcrafted, you know, we didn't have a lot of things, right? But they were all fairly unique because they were handcrafted. You know, people were poor, so they just didn't have a lot of things. And then we industrialized which is great because everyone could have a lot more consumer goods because they were Mm -hmm. made in a more efficient manner. And because they were made in a more efficient manner, they ended up being standardized. And so we got used to seeing everything in a standardized manner. In the digital world, we don't need to have that anymore, right? Like we can go back to handcrafting, democratizing beauty. And I think it's a very good thing. Also, I think something that people don't think about so much, most PFPs are generative too, right? Like CryptoPunks are generative. You didn't know when you were minting them. It's not like they were all drawn in advance by Larva Labs, right? Most properly done PFP collections that properly do the randomization on minting are a very simplistic form of generative art. And so if you look at the market cap estimates for NFTs, PFPs and generative art are probably 90% of the market cap, something like that. Mm -hmm. So... 90% of the NFT medium is generative. And so it seems fairly obvious to me that this is the natural fit. And I think we're going to see a lot more of it. Like, you know, what Artblocks is going to try and do now is open up their generative engine to all types of things. And so that you can create whatever it is you're going to create, a certificate, let's say, right? And create it generatively, right? Give someone something a little special, interesting, more artistic. It's making the world more beautiful, richer, more artistic. That's fantastic, Punk. When you describe generative art that way, that, you know, especially with with art blocks making that move where people can kind of remix anything using these kind of generative tools is this idea of democratized creation. And in fact, going back to what you said earlier, because I agree, it's about bringing us back to this old world of artisanality, but now at scale, where we got limited when we got industrialized. And now it's like actually mass industrializing in a good way, beauty and the access to beauty. I think that's why people are so excited about AI right now. It's like really like bootstrapping that kind of like innate, like if you think about it, like it's crazy to me that children are born with this innate love of art. And then we literally beat it out of them by the time they're adults. It's like very, very sad. 
And it's great to be able to give these tools back. It's literally all good things, right? I laugh when I see the criticisms. Oh, of I know. Yeah. I genuinely yeah. laugh. Like people come and harass me on my Twitter feed. And, you know, <laughs> I'm patient. I don't block anyone, right? And I'm like, wait. So we had an example. Someone was yelling at me about CC0, obviously not an actual NFT collector. Yeah. And I'm like, so I just want to get this right. I am spending a decent amount of money to buy something from an artist and supporting artists. And then I am also making it available to the global public IP commons now, not in like 100 years where all of us are dead, but like right Mm -hmm. now, so people can use it now. So the artist wins, they're paid for the art. The rest of the planet wins that they can now use this and remix it as I want. Who exactly is the victim? It's like, it wouldn't have ever crossed my mind that somehow the mainstream world would be upset that artists are making more money. Totally. My whole life was like, oh, we don't support the arts enough. We don't support the arts enough. Suddenly a bunch of crypto people are supporting the arts. And, oh, that's a problem too, right? No, but it's speculation. It's this. Well, okay. Your concern is that me, a wealthy collector, don't know my own interests. That's a very weird concern. Oh, you know, like, I'm the least sympathetic victim on the planet. I have enough money to buy Fidenzas. Why am I a victim? If Fidenzas go down in price, okay, I'm actually fine with it. But even if I wasn't fine with it, the artists have won. The world has won. Everyone can see them, enjoy them, in some cases, remix them. It's all good. And generative arts, this way, right? It's going to make the world more beautiful. It's going to make the world more authentic. And it's an endlessly good thing, in my opinion. You mentioned there's a lot in what you said. I just want to pick up on a couple of things in that really quick. One is the QQL project you mentioned was also a Tyler Hobbs project, just for context. And the listeners who may have not heard our Kevin Rose episode with Pris could check out that episode for more details on the QQL framework. By the way, just for the audience, so they know in your Zoom background, your background is a Fidenza. It's gorgeous. But one interesting thing in Tyler Hobbs, his famous essay on like, you know, why generative art is having its moment. He had a whole section in it on how it actually creates new questions of how do you then determine the quality of, and I am curious because I do like asking all the NFT collectors who love collecting NFTs for art this, how do you assess that sort of quality? Well, I mean, whether you ask people who are involved in that space to give you their personal views or just look at the market prices or just look at the press or discussion around them, I don't think there's even like the slightest doubt which ones are better than other ones. I mean, they might not be to someone who was looking at generative art on day one for the first time, right? If you have not thought about generative art ever in your life, and now I just start flipping a bunch of art block stuff at you, you're going to say like, well, what are all these squiggly lines? This is all weird. Like, I don't know what this is. But the same thing would exist if I took someone who was not art sophisticated and showed them a bunch of contemporary art and Mm -hmm. asked them to tell me which ones are the good ones. Right. And if I took someone who was not wine savvy and gave them a whole bunch of expensive wines and said, tell me which ones are the good ones. And the reality is someone who's brand new to the space is not going to know. And that's true of any specialized area. But in the people who are the curators, the collectors, the markets at large, they've spoken and they all say approximately the same thing. So I don't think there's any kind of question that like, to stick with an example, we won't say what our bad collections will be positive. Like, I don't think there's anyone who has a serious point of view that Fidenzas are bad generative art, right? Mm-hmm. 
Well, I mean, I think some traditional old school trad folks, you know, have a very limited view on some of the art that's coming out of the NFT world. But yeah, I agree with you overall. Oh, well, no, but there's, there's a bunch of junk art coming out of the NFT world, but that's not the question, right? The question mm-hmm. is, like, can you identify the good art, right? That's right? There's a bunch of junk art in the real world, too. You can go on eBay and buy $10 representational oil paintings that, of course, are completely unimportant from an artistic perspective. And that's fine. And people like them and put them in their houses or what have you. But obviously, they're also not getting into a museum. You know, the median video online is, of course, complete junk. But the best Netflix series are very, very good. The median YouTube video is not going to win an Academy Award. But so what? This is how the Internet is, right? There's no barriers to entry. It's user-generated content. And so users, and you see, look at that. What a terrible world. Like users, right? Users. (laughs) Web 2 world. It's democratized generative yes. content. And so, of course, there's going to be a bunch of silly things. Who cares? Why does that matter? Why does yeah. it matter at all? I agree with that. DGC, and, you know it when you see it. You don't have to have like a crazy sophisticated framework. I think that's a really great point of view. Okay, so let's switch gears and to, you know, for the remainder of the episode, let's talk about some recent news and moves and also more about the regulatory context and how to mainstream, you know, NFTs and these topics. I'd love to hear your guys' reactions, actually, on the recent news, both about Apple's in-app purchasing guidelines, or some would say restrictions on NFTs, as well as Reddit's move into NFTs. Like, I'd love to hear your guys' quick takes, as well as what's going on more broadly there. Yeah, great. Let's take them one at a time, because I think they're different issues. I think the Reddit news is, A, generally good news, right? Like, my theory is that the way cryptocurrency survives and doesn't get regulated away is if a lot of people are using it. And the way a lot of people use it is by different communities, companies, organizations implementing it in whatever it is that they're doing. And so in the first instance, in the first go around, the fact that Reddit managed to find a way to introduce NFTs to their community, to their people in a way that was accepted by them, I think was very good. And the way they did it was they did not use the word NFTs. They used the word digital collectibles. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting, right? Because the Reddit community was fairly anti-NFTs recently, like famously anti-NFTs. And you wouldn't think that just changing the name would make that much of a difference, but it did. And again, it's good news. I'm going to say some things that just things to look out for. But the things that I said to look out for don't change the fact that this is obviously a nice thing that happened, a good thing that happened. The more people using NFTs, the better. The only thing I would just flag, there's often a discussion in the NFT space itself, including by people who are, you know, deep pro-cryptocurrency, crypto assets, decentralization-oriented people who say, well, we're going to have to rebrand because the NFT name has been burned because, you know, people associated with quote-unquote overpriced, you know, cartoon characters. and Nobody likes that, so we have to change the name. And my view about that is that, like, I don't think it's going to happen that way. And I don't think we should worry about that as much because there's really no other name that is going to end up, I've seen all the suggestions, and all the suggestions cover some subset of what you can use NFTs for. So digital collectibles doesn't even cover the basic art space of NFTs, let alone 
utility NFTs, let alone vacation rental NFTs, right? I mean, it doesn't cover any of that stuff. So it is a subset of the space. That's number one. Yeah. It also, though, and I think this is the dangerous point, there's nothing about a digital collectible that needs to be decentralized, right? There have been digital collectibles sold for years and in-game, in-game objects are digital collectibles and they sit in the database. And so it is important that at a minimum, the people who know what an NFT is, know what crypto assets are, know what being on chain is, who are actively promoting these values and approach to societal organization, don't lose heart just because someone's out there complaining that it's overpriced, it's a scam, it's money laundering. I mean, we've been hearing this since the beginning of Bitcoin. Totally. It's fine. It's going to happen. People will progressively get over it. And the analogy that I have in my mind, I remember in the kind of 2014-2015 era, it kind of became forbidden to say the word cryptocurrency or the word Bitcoin. Everyone was like, look, we're going to do blockchains. We'll do blockchains. And so for three years, we all had to go around pretending we were doing blockchains. And just like in the mid-90s, we had to go around and we were going to do an information superhighway. We weren't going to do the internet. And we've now passed that. All the enterprise blockchain stuff is more or less dead. And we're back to where we were in the beginning and where it actually matters, which is in public blockchains, public cryptocurrencies, and crypto assets. And I think the same thing's going to happen here. So if they need to call them digital collectibles or whatever else they need to call them, that's absolutely fine. I think we, the people deep in the NFT space, should not feel like we have to hide what they are. I don't think that's necessary. And I do think in time, we're going to end up back with NFTs because the person who bought a digital collectible, which is really a Polygon NFT, is going to learn how to use a wallet eventually. And then they'll do something else and they'll realize that other things they can do in those wallets aren't digital collectibles. So I suspect we'll spend two or three years in the blockchain phase of NFTs is, I think, my conclusion here. Yeah, I agree with all that. I would just add a few things. I think one, the way Reddit did it to me was there's sort of a line somewhere. For example, I remember StockX, which is a sneaker resale company, did sort of an NFT thing and it was all just stored on their local database and all of the messaging sort of consistent with that. And to me, that that crossed the line to not actually being NFTs. I think Reddit sort of softened some of the messaging, but ultimately, you know, did architect it in a generally correct way. So to me, it was on the right side of that line. I would also agree that tech products are fundamentally marketed through experiences and not through kind of names. And a good example, you know, MP3s, JPEGs, like these are, you know, I remember way back people you know, debate, you know, there's a lot of sort of technical terms that have hashtags was once a technical term that have sort of propagated out and they've done so through people creating extremely compelling experiences. So for example, at some point there'll be a, an incident where there are two games and one game has NFTs and one game doesn't. And the game that doesn't takes away all of the assets the users have built and the game that uses NFTs doesn't, and people will experience the difference and understand viscerally why a blockchain matters in that case. Those are the kind of key moments, if you look back at the history of tech, that end up being so consequential in marketing, more so than the, I don't know, the madman view of marketing that sort of it's a logo and a brand name and things like that. 
Yeah, I, I agree completely. What was, I forgot, what was the second question that you had asked me? Sorry. Yeah, so the second question is, what do you think of the recent news about Apple's announcements of NFTs and taking sort of the in-app purchases and how they're structuring all that? Well, I mean, it is just incredible to me that the broader ecosystem of people who often find all types of random things to complain about crypto are somehow comfortable with the fact that we have effectively an oligopoly in multiple parts of the tech industry, but certainly in mobile phones. And it is absolutely being leveraged to pick up oligopoly style returns. I mean, the idea that 20%, 30% of the app economy and anything that touches an app should be a sensible take rate to your cell phone provider is just odd. It's weird. You know, I speak with some regularity to regulators and policymakers. And what I tell them is, look, you're in a technological environment or a digital landscape that is dominated by less than 10 firms. And if you're thinking about your own national digital sovereignty, if you're thinking about your own economy in 10, 15, 20 years, more of your economy is going to be digital than it is now. I mean, a lot more. We already have a highly digitalized economy, and in any developed country, that's going to continue and continue and continue. And you don't have a level of discomfort that the Web 2 era or 2005 to 2020 era firms that have established take rates in the 30% range are also saying, by the way, yeah, this is great that there's all this other new technological development, and we're going to be happy to continue these types of take rates in the future. So, you know, Meta had mentioned for some creator assets in their metaverse that it would be 30% plus 25% of the profits. Or the calculation came out to 48%, which is, I mean, a shocking number. And the argument on their side was like, well, look, it's like the app store. I mean, this is the type of this is the type of take rates we deserve and expect. And once you're deep into the crypto space. And you see that, you know, OpenSea has a two and a half percent take rate and is attacked from 20 different directions by other competitors trying to move that effectively to zero. The idea that 30% or 40% or 48% is a remotely reasonable solution. It's something that we should be happy with in a market economy. It's just bizarre, right? And this is not me saying like, oh, we should necessarily regulate Apple or break up Apple or what have you, but it is a reason why it's pro-consumer to push for open systems. It's pro-consumer to push for systems that have a right to exit. The reason Luxrare was able to attempt a vampire attack on OpenSea is you can see every one of OpenSea's customers. You can see what trades they did. You can see what transactions they did, and then you can go target them. Whereas if I called up Coinbase, if I called up Brian Armstrong and said, hey, I was thinking of launching a competing exchange, and I'd really appreciate it if you just sent me over your customer database. I'd like to know everyone's bank accounts and, in fact, their complete trade history and, in fact, how profitable a customer they were for you. Mm -hmm. So I can just really target your best customers to take them away. I'd be laughed out of the room or, like, reported to the police or something, right? <laughs> and this is a crypto-centric firm, whereas OpenSea, you can do that. and it's fine. That is how it is. You can actually see the trades. And so this type of thinking of 
how you should have a proper architecture for a world that will be primarily digital in the coming decades. I feel as it's lacking in Washington, it's lacking in Brussels. I don't think we've done a good job of getting the message across that all of this stuff is deeply pro-consumer, it's deeply pro-competition, it's deeply pro-markets. And my view of the starting position is you should be actively promoting this as a platform. It's a better platform. It's a public commons for things of value. And just like the internet was for information, it will lead to greater competition, greater innovation than the alternative. Just to add to that, a key question, I think, about kind of the power consolidation in tech is network effects are an incredibly powerful force that increase the cost of switching, of users switching to a different network and create pricing power for platforms. Apple has massive network effects around their iOS app store. Facebook has massive network effects, Twitter, you know, Google, at least in some respects, certainly on YouTube. A key difference with crypto and as Punk was saying in OpenSea is that the network effects accrue to a community instead of to a company. Mm -hmm. And because of that, OpenSea is just similar to sort of an email provider, an email provider like Outlook or Gmail, they don't control the network, they provide access to it. And that's a very important concept for analyzing kind of monopolistic power on the internet. Mm -hmm. I find the discussion frustrating because I think outside of a few technologists and maybe forward thinking economists, I don't think people are even using the right framework around network effects to analyze these things. And as a result, you have basically Apple doing what they did is the Death Star allowing like a small group of rebel ships to pass through. And meanwhile, many of the policymakers are supporting them at the expense of the crypto community, which I think is the only credible, the blockchain crypto web three movement is the only credible countervailing force right now to the increasingly monopolistic power of these tech incumbents. Yeah, and you can disagree around the nuances of it and how far along it is and the things that need to happen. But I don't think there's any question if you seriously look at the landscape that that's kind of the the basic market dynamics. And look, even companies like Epic, which makes Fortnite, which you know I don't think of as a very particularly crypto forward company, even they are you know in a lawsuit with Apple. I think you're going to see these issues become more and more prominent. It's just they have an incredible chokehold. And as Punk was saying that they would have sort of a 30% take rate throughout the economy. Mm -hmm. It's just an incredible drag on innovation and entrepreneurship. I think part of the root of this is antitrust thinking. I mean, that developed in a physical goods era that had marginal costs, right? So the whole logic is looking for price-related issues, right? They look at it through like Michael Porter, Five Forces Frameworks, which is an industrial era framework in my view. Correct. They don't have a mental model for even something like Google search or Twitter where, no, the product's free. Like what's the consumer harm, right? Where is it? Well, it's more indirect. The consumers build the network effect and then rent seeking happens on the back end, right? So the same thing's what's happening with, with app stores. And I have not seen any good thinking on this topic come out of Washington. And this is not to say that I think Washington is necessarily even right on the tech companies when they get annoyed at them. But you can see when they call up various tech CEOs to Congress and they grill them with a bunch of questions, you know, all the questions are wrong. Like, I mean, they're either like actively factually wrong, they don't understand how those companies work, or even if they understand how those companies work, 
they don't understand the architecture of why they work the way they work. And then they're always hitting up against the wrong points. And it's not just a Washington issue. It's an EU issue. It bothers them, this American company tech dominance. Mm-hmm. And then they go do a bunch of things that help American tech companies, right? Like, say, mm-hmm. oh, well, we're going to give them a bunch of extremely annoying <laughs> legal legislation to comply with, which, of course, Facebook and Google and whatever can hire 50 people to deal with exactly. whatever the EU comes out with. But some small startup in Frankfurt can't. And so yeah. it's interesting to see. I don't think the policymakers have the right framework here. I mean, and just to clarify, this is something I think actually a lot of people don't even realize, except for those of us who are very immersed in, you know, competitive theories and network effects and anti-competitive thinking. But even a huge difference traditionally between U.S. and EU mindsets around competition and antitrust is that it's only anti-consumer if it's something that's hurting consumers, not other companies in the U.S., whereas in the EU, it's much more the other direction. Like, oh, is it preventing other companies from getting in? So in the U.S., one of the very unique qualities is that a lot of the legislation and laws have formed in a way that actually is only, is this harmful to consumers, which is exactly the right lens to use, which is why I think the EU is actually particularly tied up and contorted in knots around this one. I have a quick question for both of you. What would you guys put forth as an alternative view then? You know, like you're saying you don't think that anyone has the right views out there and how to think about network effects and this new world of business. How would you, like what mental model would you put out in the world to help people really understand what's happening here? So we're not only reacting to what we don't like, but we're actually putting forth a view into the world of what we think is the right way to think about this new world. Look, I don't think they even need to do very much. I think if they gave predictable, clear, non-punitive framework for crypto assets, we'll take it the rest of the way, right? Like, I don't even think you need necessarily enforcement from the government. I don't think you need the government to, like, do crypto assets bidding. But you do need, I think, a clear policy position that, for example, self-hosted wallets, quote-unquote non-custodian wallets, or as we call it in the real world, just your wallet, right? The wallet you have in your pocket with money, you don't think of it as a self-custodial non-hosted wallet. It's just your wallet, right? The other things are bank account. But they're fine. And I think a little bit more clarity on tokenization would be helpful. You know, the Mm. SEC, at least in the current SEC, seems uncomfortable in saying literally anything other than Bitcoin is not a security. Well, there are certainly tokens out there that are securities, but it's certainly not every token other than Bitcoin. And all of this, what it does, it's a gigantic drag on investment in the space, both by companies or investment firms who have to deploy capital, but also by talented individuals who wonder if they should dedicate one and three and five and 10 years of their career. And, you know, I do believe that both Washington and Brussels don't exactly love the dominance of the current tech companies. And yet they're effectively promoting policies that are a subsidy to the tech companies, which is weird. And what I'm saying is that I don't want a subsidy for crypto, but I do want an even playing field. And there's precedent for this, right? When we started with e-commerce, there was a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt about whether you could sign electronically, right? If electronic signatures meant anything. 
And they're like, oh, well, this is never going to work because someone has to send a contract and, you know, you're going to buy from Amazon and they're also going to send you a physical contract to make your order. And back then, I think there was a more pro-technology approach in Washington from both parties, a more pro-innovation approach. And very quickly and much before the EU, Washington passed the e-signature act. I was like, yes, this is something new. We used to sign things on pieces of paper. Now we can sign things on a web form. By the way, you're watching the same issue play out in crypto and NFTs. You know, all of the issue, can you transfer IP rights through a token? Simultaneously, strictly speaking, as the law is written, not exactly so in some cases, but also the law is just made up, right? You didn't used to be able to buy things on Amazon without a physical signature, right? And be legally binding. And then we said, oh, right, the internet exists, so we should enable people using the internet. And now cryptocurrencies exist, and they're obviously useful and can do things. And let's figure out how to get out of their way and let people use them correctly. But I don't think that's the attitude. I think the attitude tends to be very begrudgingly kicking and screaming to like not literally shut the industry down. And I mean, everyone forgets this, but we're what now like 13 months away from the new infrastructure bill past the fact that any transaction you do over $10,000, you need to send KYC information within 10 days to the government. Otherwise, you've committed a felony. This is currently the law of the land that comes into place in 13 months. And if that happens, it's going to be, I think, fairly devastating to huge aspects of this economy, right? Like it's going to be very tough for DeFi. It's going to be tough for NFTs. And I don't think we're worried enough about it. And even in the United States, even in the most pro-innovation, pro-freedom, pro-capitalism, pro-technology country in the world, there is still tremendous hesitation around crypto assets. Tremendous. That you just didn't see with internet. I don't know, Chris, how do you see these topics? No, I agree with you. I think just to illustrate some of those points, you know, I've been involved with non-crypto startups as well as crypto. And with non-crypto startups, you would typically start your company by hiring a bunch of engineers and designers and maybe, you know, at employee 50 or something, start thinking about legal stuff beyond, you know, basic incorporation and things. With our crypto portfolio, I mean, the first few million dollars and ultimately tens of millions of dollars goes into lawyers and legal fees because of all of this uncertainty. You have to basically hire people to read a bunch of, you know, enforcement actions and try to infer policy because to this day, We've never actually gotten any kind of clarity on policy beyond Supreme Court cases and then various enforcement actions. So that's one cost. I think a more important cost that's less obvious. So I was involved with Coinbase for a long time. And what you saw there was Coinbase made a massive investment, you know, many hundreds of millions of dollars in compliance and other things around it, not to mention all the products that they wanted to do that they couldn't do because of compliance issues. Meanwhile, they were competing with offshore companies. And it was sort of this constant game of whack-a-mole where the offshore companies would be able to move much faster, have a much wider range of products. And yet the enforcement sort of stuff was always directed at Coinbase and never at those companies. And so you created this really perverse, and this happens not just at Coinbase, but look at all this fiasco that just happened around stable coins and around these sort of centralized Bitcoin lenders. You basically had all of this attention focused at what I think are pretty clearly good actors and to the neglect of the bad actors, and that both costs the good actors a lot of time, but also 
actually creates an incentive to be a bad actor to go offshore and then led to, I think, if you look at some of these offshore stablecoin issues and other things, I think ultimately led to much more consumer harm. So yeah, I definitely think that's frustrating. I think there are some very positive green shoots in the policy arena and that more and more policymakers are starting to understand kind of the importance of this. But ultimately, you know, we need to continue to work to explain these issues. I think it's important also that entrepreneurs build products that get widely used. As we were discussing before, things like Reddit, and I hope Facebook and a bunch of other companies doing stuff, even though, as Punk was saying, that some of the purists might not like it, I think it really ends up benefiting the space as a whole and in terms of teaching people about the technology and kind of changing some of the negative impressions. And by the way, I just want to thank you too, Punk, for your amazing contribution when earlier this year, I don't think people realize you did this. You wrote a glossary of terms and lingo that people use in the crypto community. I think that is still one of the most valuable pieces of content ever because it's so inclusive in terms of welcoming people into the space. Thank you so much, Well, We got to get people on board. That's the idea. That's great. Maybe this is a good time to just close on describing what you're up to, Punk. Yeah, it's awesome. So the day-to-day stuff is the same four things as always. It's the 6529 Museum. I try and buy interesting NFTs and it's permanent. They go in, they don't come out. And so I think it's important for the space to have this idea of a permanent repository of important cultural objects. And also, they will only be displayed in decentralized spaces, right? So that's number one. Number two, we have the fund. The third is what we're doing with minting. You know, we're having a lot of fun with the meme cards. And so the meme cards are pieces of art that are meant to promote decentralization-oriented messages. And because of this, they're also CC0, they're public domain, people can remix them as they want. And they're large editions, they're affordably priced, I think, by NFT standards. I hate this idea of like, oh, NFTs are just for multimillionaires. It's the type of thing you can go buy in a normal store, right? And that's a lot of fun. We're getting a lot of exposure for emerging artists to a much larger audience. We're seeing some emergence of the remix culture. And there'll be some exciting things, I think, happening over the next few months as this Mm -hmm. develops further as the community grows. And this is an idea of saying, look, look, we have messages we need to get out, and not all these messages are going to get out through policy papers on subchapter 5I7 of the latest AML framework. Yeah, We need to get out messages like, freedom to transact in visual formats, right? Mm. And so that's the goal here. We're going to try and get these messages out in visual formats. We're probably three, four months away from being sufficiently decentralized. And the idea there is what is a truly censorship-resistant metaverse space looks like? And, you know, like everything else, there's trade-offs, right? Mm -hmm. You can obviously make it more performant by centralizing it, but the same way that an Oracle database is more performant than Bitcoin is. But you need both types of spaces. And the, I am going to use Unity or Unreal Engine to stream a game from a server. This is well covered. The whole planet's going to go do this, right? This is something that is highly hardened and adversarial resistant. We're not there yet, but we're getting there. And then the super fun thing we're doing this fall, Mm -hmm. I am co-teaching a course at the University of Nicosia on NFTs in the metaverse. Mm-hmm. And there are three interesting things about the course. The first interesting thing is we have an absolutely absurd set of guests, including your very own Chris Dixon coming. <laughs> a lot of the top artists in the space, a lot of the top collectors in the space, some of the 
investors from a traditional format like VC firms, some of the investors from DAOs. So there's going to be a wealth of knowledge and everything we're doing there is going to be CC by attribution. So people can take all this work, both the presentations, the videos, and spread them around. So again, spread the message. Right? Like we got to get the word out. We have to get people engaged in this topic that it matters. But then there are two interesting things that I haven't seen before. The first interesting thing is the course is going to run on chain. And so you will get ultimately into the token gated spaces with a token. You'll be able to mentor strictly then with a token. We're trying to figure out, and it's very stressful because we don't have much time left. We're trying to figure out how to do the exam on chain, which means you need zero knowledge proofs. Otherwise, everyone's going to cheat, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea is to do it on chain, which I've never seen anyone do this before, and also in a metaverse environment. And here we're doing it in OM, and we're learning all types of things. I mean, the first thing I've learned is the OM type experience works pretty well for educational context. People like seeing each other around, even when you're doing something very basic, like you're interviewing someone on video, like we're doing today. And this is all just social, visual, aesthetic, right? It's not, strictly speaking, technical. It is somehow more interesting, more community-oriented for people to go there with their avatars and watch this in a... 3D environment than just be a username watching the exact same video on YouTube. That's right. right? More present. Yeah. It's more presence. It's more community. People see each other because it's all the same people who know each other from Twitter and from Discord. And they're like, oh, look, it's so-and-so. I know them from Discord. I know them from Twitter. I see them in class. They're here with their avatar. And that's better than if they're just like some comments reply person on YouTube. You feel less a part of the community there. And so the substantive point of the course is to find a way to get a lot of these messages out in a structured way. And I think it's targeted really well in that the base lessons that I'm doing, I'm trying to keep them at a level that someone who is not into NFTs can at least get a sense of what's going on, right? And then when we bring the speakers, you know, last speaker was 4156, who's big thinker on decentralization. We can get into really sophisticated topics that are going to be, I think, interesting even for the most sophisticated people in the NFT space. And so the course is free. You can come attend it. It's all open. It's all free to use. We're trying to get the message out to everyone. And hopefully it will leave a corpus of work and material that people can reuse. And then, you know, maybe, maybe we'll keep doing it actually every semester and getting the word out to people because generally... People are badly confused about these topics, right? Yeah. So having something that's well-structured, that we get the best of our field in front of everyone mm-hmm. and have real discussions, including like the pluses and minuses, and right. I think it's a good thing. We want to say thank you for taking the time. Well, great. Well, thank you for having me. This thank was super you. fun. Yeah, thank you both. It was great. Thanks, Punk. Thank you so much, you guys. Take care. Have a great day. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to Web3 with A6 and Z. You can find show notes with links to resources, books, or papers discussed, transcripts, and more at a6nzcrypto.com. This episode was produced and edited by Sonal Choksi, that's me. The episode was technically edited by our audio editor, Justin Golden, with Seven Morris. Credit also to Moonshot Design for the art, and all thanks to support from a 6 and Z Crypto. To follow more of our work and get updates, resources from us, and from others, 
be sure to subscribe to our Web3 weekly newsletter. You can find it on our website at a6nzcrypto.com. Thank you for listening and for subscribing. Let's go.